This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, November the 13th. We're going to talk about inventors and inventions tonight. And I've always been fascinated by inventors. I'd love to crawl inside the mind of an inventor, what makes these people tick. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily people that, uh, that uh, you know, wear white lab coats and uh, work for uh, universities where they receive, you know, millions and millions of dollars in, in research and development money. I'm talking about the backyard tinkerer, the, the guy that, uh, the, the guy or gal who toils away in a dank basement somewhere with a Bunsen burner and test tubes and maybe is self-taught, has very little formal training. These, to me, are the fascinating people, the people that have the potential uh, to change the world. Unfortunately, sometimes uh, their lack of training or their inability to work well or play well with others means that they sort of get in their own way. And uh, ultimately and tragically, their, their, uh, their ideas, their inventions are lost to humanity. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about inventions uh, tonight. I'm reminded of that quote that uh, sometimes even the, 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 the greatest idea uh, was first thought of as crazy, and that's so true. Um, groundbreaking revolutionary ideas are initially met with tremendous resistance and sometimes uh, even violent. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we'll speak with Lamont Wood, who's going to talk about uh, inventors and their ideas that are oddly out of place. Uh, these inventions and devices are sort of anachronisms. In other words, uh, they come about seemingly out of the blue. And he'll give some remarkable examples of, of that, uh, just uh, to tease it a little bit. Uh, did you know that in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, they actually, uh, children would, would play with these toys that were powered by steam, even though we didn't have the steam engine until uh, the, the 18th century. Uh, first off, however, we're going to talk about some wannabe 
uh, Teslas, Nikola Tesla, of course. You can't talk about inventors without talking about the the uh, the patron saint of eccentric inventors. Uh, Tyler Hamilton is a business columnist for the Toronto Star, Canada's largest daily newspaper. In addition to his Clean Break blog, Tyler writes a weekly column of the same name that discusses trends, happenings, and innovators in the clean technology and green energy market. This blog is a personal project. He started in April 2005, and uh, his latest book is entitled Mad Like Tesla, Underdog Inventors and the Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy. Tyler, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Very well. Congratulations on the book. It's a, it's a real page-turner. Thanks very much. Before we launch into uh, uh, some of these clean energy ideas, let's talk first about the title, Mad Like Tesla. We, we, we can't have a conversation about uh, underdog inventors without talking about the patron saint of mad inventors, Nikola Tesla. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about Nikola. Well, it's interesting. A lot of people have, have heard the name Nikola Tesla, but... Uh... You know, you, you talk to folks in the general public about them, and, and they'll often say, isn't that that guy who invented that electric car, that really fast electric car? Um, it, it's, it's funny when you tell people that he, he was around 100 years ago, and he's a great inventor who invented the things that make our, our modern-day electricity system possible today. Um, people are, are, are actually surprised, and they think that, well, wasn't that Edison, or wasn't that, you know, so-and-so? So, um he, he's a fascinating character. He is responsible for uh, inventing the, the uh, polyphase AC uh, induction motor technology and generator technology that underpins the, the modern-day electricity system. But he went far beyond that. He, he was dabbling in everything from X-rays to plasma physics uh, to uh, uh, remote control automation, even into... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theorists out there think that he was developing a, a weapon for for the military. The like death the, ray. The death ray, yeah, which which earned him the title of uh, of the uh, Tesla, the mad scientist in the first uh, uh, animated uh, Superman cartoon. So um, so he he was an extraordinary character, and uh, but he was also considered a, a a bit of a mad scientist because of he was so so far ahead of his time. People couldn't really relate to what he was talking about, and um, they thought it was all science fiction, fantasy, um, and, and of course, a lot of the things that he predicted didn't really come true until well after his death, so you can understand why somebody talking about a race of autom- you know, automated machines fighting wars for us sounded odd back in his day but it's actually something that we have today. But in terms of alternative energy, clean energy, even free energy, uh, he was uh, toying around with uh, anti-gravitics at, at one point, was he not? Yeah, yeah, he was toying around with that, and he, he, had, um, he had a thought as well that, the, that we could pull energy from just the, the atmosphere, the ambient air around us. Um, Zero had, point. Yeah, and he had this vision of, of this, this world system where, uh, in addition to drawing signals from the air through communication, which we have today, he thought that we could also pull power from the air and, uh, and use, basically use that to direct power to things such as submarines in the middle of the ocean and cruise ships and cars and all sorts of things. And that was his, that was his ultimate vision. And yet he died pretty much penniless, uh, a broken man, I believe, at the Waldorf Astoria back in the late 40s in New York. 
Yes, he he wasn't a brilliant businessman. <laughs> he he gave away all of his uh, patents to uh, to guys like George Westinghouse, who who became quite quite rich because of them. But he he didn't protect himself well, and he didn't write a lot of things down. So when it came time to make money off of his inventions, it was somebody else benefiting, and he ended up penniless, um, practically begging for money to continue his research and his uh, inventions. Um, you know, it's, it's sad. He actually, his only love in his life was a was a pigeon that would visit him regularly in his hotel room, and uh, and he talked about it as his as his only love. And he was also a very quirky fellow too. He didn't. Um, he had a lot of uh, uh, obsessive compulsions, and uh, he he was awkward in, in various social situations. So this uh, this certainly probably you know contributed to to the difficulty of him. Um, you know, finding happiness with with a <laughs> with a female, or you know, ha- having relationships of uh, of the normal kind um, that that sometimes can keep keep people sane. Tyler Hamilton, author of Mad Like Tesla, Underdog Inventors, and the Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy, here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You mentioned alternating current, and of course, that's the electrical system that we have today. Uh, his his um, his arch nemesis in in some respects was Thomas Edison, who was who was uh, pushing uh, DC direct current. Mm-hmm. I mean, did they really did they hate each other, or was this a was it a, a friendly uh, a, a competition, or, or was there a real enmity here? I I you know my readings of it, I felt that there was a mutual respect for each other, but that there was there was a, a hatred, and you know. I wouldn't even say that Tesla hated Edison as much as Edison hated Tesla. He thought he thought Tesla was uh, um, was an odd character. He was threatening um, his own view or a vision of what the world could be like with his inventions. And, and Tesla's uh, alternating current system threatened the direct current system that that Edison envisioned. Um, the one of the main problems that Edison had is that he. He saw the the alternating current system as as dangerous, right? You've got high voltages, high current, um, and certainly it is more dangerous than a DC system. But he also didn't like the fact that um, with the, with the distributed cur- current system, he was basically selling um, uh, distributed generation systems for like factories, small towns, and that. And the idea is that you you know as these spread across. Uh, North America, he he could sell thousands, thousands, and thousands of these systems, and he thought that Tesla's ability to send power through vast, you know, long distances um, really killed that whole model that Tesla, uh, so that that Edison had come up with, and he thought it thought as a grave threat to his 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 business opportunities in that area. So it got really nasty. I mean, uh, tell me about what Edison was was willing to do i mean this this became like a real dogfight in terms of it, it, this campaign ac or dc and and edison really kind of took the low road on this one didn't he yeah he, he it was it became a nasty public relations campaign he tried to convince regulators and government officials that ac was so dangerous that it couldn't possibly be accepted and to prove his point uh he would he would hold these little uh um, town hall meetings where he would, uh, and it wouldn't be Edison directly. He'd have his, his various henchmen uh, doing it for him. But they would they would electrocute animals, and they would at one point they even tried to electrocute an elephant uh, to prove that um, these systems, if they could bring down an elephant, then it's too dangerous for for human beings. Didn't he convince the state of New York 
that AC was so dangerous that it might be an effective way of uh, of getting rid of of um, uh, prisoners, murderers. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, yeah. The the whole idea of uh, electrocuting criminals uh, <laughs> it sort of came out of this view of what AC was was capable of. So, and 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 indeed, that that was something that convinced uh, some jurisdictions to take that approach. So. You know, and Edison was a very powerful businessman. He had friends in high places, and um, it, it makes it all the more um, surprising that, that Tesla was able to convince the world that, that his system was better. It's a, certainly a case of technology triumphing over, over uh, politics and, 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 and pure money. Uh, Tyler, hold on. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. I want to continue to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Tesla and, uh, and Edison. And, you know, I gotta be, uh, I'll tell you right up front, I, I mean, I, I like Edison, I, pref- I mean, Edison, the, or sorry, the, the Tesla, the, the more I read about Edison, uh, the more I discover this was not a nice man. And Tesla, of course, um, the misunderstood genius, I, I have a great deal of time for, for Tesla. But uh, I have to think that Edison may have been right. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that when we come back on the other side with Tyler Hamilton, author of Mad Like Tesla, Underdog Inventors, and the Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Tyler Hamilton, author of Mad Like Tesla, Underdog Inventors, and the Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy. Tyler is uh, an energy reporter and clean uh, technology a columnist with the Toronto Star. Now, Tyler, we were talking about Tesla versus Edison, uh, AC versus DC, and uh, what a piece of work Edison really was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it seems to me that here we are in uh, 2011, and this idea of decentralizing power grid structures or getting rid of the power grid structure, uh, you know, the, the way that they've delivered electricity really hasn't changed in 100 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people are trying to get off the grid or now they're talking about uh, um, these bloom boxes where you can uh, basically attach uh, this device to your, uh, say, your natural gas uh, uh, a pipe that's coming into your house and, and, and convert that into electricity. So, I mean, that's more akin to what, what Edison was talking about, ha- decentralizing and having the electrical plants in each and every home. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes, makes more sense. Yeah, it is. It is ironic that we've kind of become full circle, um, you know, to the point where we see value in Edison's vision, vision so long after. But, you know, my view is that in today's day and age, you can't have a purely distributed uh, energy system. It's going to have to be a hybrid system because, because, and and I, and I see a lot of parallels with with the internet, where you've got these kind of local networks that are connected through this large backbone, right? And if you don't have this backbone, then suddenly you've got this island that it becomes vulnerable if, if suddenly something within that island fails. So, so the beauty about what, what Tesla came up with and this, this ability to, to, to transmit power over vast distances, and, and it was originally sparked, I should add, because of his own vision of seeing... Um, the the power of Niagara Falls, the energy uh, generation potential of Niagara Falls, um, powering uh, Ontario and New York and all the all the areas around Niagara Falls, um, and and bringing it 
away from small towns like Buffalo at the time and, and having it go you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the, the central source. But what happened was, is over time, um, we, we built a system around centralized generation. We have the large coal plants, we have the large nuclear plants, large hydroelectric and large natural gas. And now, today, with, with many of our environmental concerns, climate change, CO2 emissions, uh, we're seeing the value of distributed generation, having the power generated where you need it, because there's a lot of power losses when you're, when you're, when you're distributing energy over large distances. You can lose 10 to 20 percent of your, of your energy right off the bat, um, just sending it over, over a transmission line a few hundred miles. So... But I don't think, because the, we've, we've, we've grown so much, the population, our economy, we can't really have these islands anymore. They have to be connected. So I think, I think there's room for both Edison's view and Tesla's view. The other issue is, of course, is um, uh, the environment and producing uh, clean energy. And, and uh, nuclear energy, uh, once we can, we can wrap our heads around how to solve the, the safe storage or uh, perhaps transmutating the, um, the waste, and there are tremendous uh, um, technologies that are being developed now uh, to, to virtually uh, transmute uh, nuclear waste into harmless uh, uh, particles uh, virtually overnight. I mean, it's very experimental, but... Um, mm-hmm. I think we're getting close. Uh, but the other issue with nuclear energy is it's either on or it's off. You can't sort of scale it down the way you can other generators. So what we end up here in, in Ontario doing is when the um, when the grid is sort of, uh, when the power grid is to capacity, we end up having to get other jurisdictions to take our excess nuclear-generated electricity off our hands, but we end up paying them. I mean, it just seems so ridiculous. So we got to figure out a way what to do with that excess nuclear-generated uh, elect- electricity. Yeah, well, there's another problem, too, is that nuclear uh, power plants are becoming larger and larger to try to achieve economies of scale, and that creates a central point of failure. So if you do have a, a plant that happens to experience a problem, you can have uh, 1,000, 2,000 megawatts just suddenly taken off the grid, and that has a huge impact. So... Um, it's part of the reason why there's a trend towards building smaller reactors, right? So you can have a, a bunch of 100-megawatt reactors um, kind of pooled together in one site. And, you know, if a, couple of, if a couple go down, it's not much of an impact. And it also allows you to shut off a couple if you have surplus electricity from, say, wind generation overnight or some solar power uh, fields during the day. So, you know, I think it just comes down to design of the system and being smarter with how we design the system um, having a diverse portfolio of, of generation assets, and um, and having a mixture of large and small systems, and and uh, I think where this discussion of ours will lead to is also having uh, future storage uh, options, being able to take that surplus electricity instead of having to to dump it into the market at at cost uh, or at a negative cost, um, we can somehow store it in in. There's a variety of ways to do it, but uh, there, there's also new technologies uh, coming along that uh, could make this economical someday. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely revisit that storage issue uh, as this discussion progresses. But uh, uh, I mean, the point of this book is you are in constant contact in your con- in your capacity as a columnist and a reporter mm-hmm. uh, covering this beat with with sort of Tesla wannabes. Uh, these are. Um, 
individuals that may or may not have credentials. They may or may not have backing of uh, a major institution like a, a university or a research uh, facility. They may not be receiving research and development grants. They might be tinkering in their, in, in, in their basement or in their garage. But talk to me a little bit about uh, uh, the kinds of people that over the years that, you, that, uh, that, that have been in touch with you. I mean, are, are they calling you up and saying, Tyler, I've got a perpetual motion machine, or Tyler, um, you know, I think I've, I've invented, um, you know, a form of clean energy that's in limitless supply and it'll solve all our, natu- our, all our, 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 our fossil fuel problems. I mean, give me a sense of who was contacting you or who you were investigating. Well, they, they tend to focus on either generators, like some, some type of generator that's based on an arrangement of magnets that provide uh, unlimited supplies of energy, Others have come to me with, with um, methods of producing uh, fuels that are very, very inexpensive that can, uh, in their view, make uh, gasoline obsolete. Um, you know, th- there's, there's, there's a range of different projects. They all have kind of like a magical, mystical element to them, and most of the, the people pitching them to me don't really um, reveal enough to allow me to make a, uh, you know, a, an educated uh, decision on whether to pursue the story. And... I get approached a lot uh, by these people. Um, occasionally, I do, I do, as I say in the book, I do go down the rabbit hole with them, you know, <laughs> right. and 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 I see value in in what they're trying to do. And 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 in the case of my book, there was an individual by the name of Thane Hines who had uh, developed a generator that he claims um, accelerates and and produces more energy the least the less energy you put into it. So in in effect. He wouldn't say these words, but in effect, a perpetual motion machine. Um, and he thought that you could you could you could incorporate this into a car, where you can charge the batteries while you accelerate instead of when you brake, which would completely you know, basically allow you to make an electric car that would just continue to run forever, and you would never have to to recharge it. Um, the thing that made me pursue his story it was, it was twofold. One is that. He had just devoted so much of his time and life into it, and it had affected his family. And he and he, and he talked with conviction. And he didn't really talk like a like a, a crackpot. He came across as a very rational individual. And uh, the other thing is, is that he had people that were interested in it. Like, and and when I say interested, like people from companies like Magna International or professors at MIT, he had had inquiries from from folks like uh, NASA. And that, to me, made me think, well, maybe he's on to something. And even if it's not what he claims it is, maybe it's still something that improves the efficiency of a generator design. So occasionally a story that I would initially raise a red flag about um, occasionally, I do let it slide through, and I do follow up with with a more detailed investigation. And you know, ultimately, I can't prove whether it works or not. I just have to wait and see how this person does, and whether they can convince the market and convince people to fund it. And uh, more often than not, uh, they never get to that stage. Yeah, you and I both know uh, Thane. Uh, I too have uh, have seen the. Uh the uh, the special generator in action. I'm not a, a scientist. It seemed to be doing something extraordinary to me. However, let's uh, talk a little bit about that uh, and Thane when we come back and some other inventors as well. Tyler Hamilton, mad like Tesla, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. 
and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Tyler Hamilton stays with us as we uh, discuss underdog inventors and their relentless pursuit of clean energy. And, of course, uh, the Holy Grail... Of course, the Holy Grail is uh, uh, the perpetual motion machine or, or some device that is incredibly uh, efficient. And so, of course, uh, Thane Hines and his generator comes to mind. And, and that term, perpetual motion, is, is uh, it's not a, a word or a phrase you want to bring up around Thane because, um, you know, he, he steadfastly denies that that's what it is, uh, although he's claiming uh, the efficiency uh, of this generator is practically infinite. And, um, but, but he is, he, uh, there are some interesting parallels between him and Tesla because he has been uh, ostracized and marginalized. And, uh, um, but as you say, the, the thing is, he, he has caught the attention of some, some research people. Uh, I've seen, you know, correspondence between him and people at NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory oh. and, and as you say, Magna and other companies. They're, they're willing to take a look, they're interested, and he sold the license um, uh, for some of this technology to some to some companies, so there must be something to it, to what he says. It may, yeah, it, it makes you wonder, and, and, and it kind of has you you're rooting for him. You think that there's going to be some breakthrough, and as he says, all he needs is one you know, big company or some big funder to back him, and, and he can have the resources to, to, to carry through on, on his vision. You know, he, he doesn't have a J.P. Morgan like Tesla had a J.P. Morgan uh, bankrolling him. And um, that was the beauty maybe 100 years ago. It was a simpler time and when, when a rich uh, philanthropist was able to identify somebody as a genius, could say, you know, here's some money, go tinker, and, and, and I get to have the, uh, the rights to whatever you invent. Um, Thane, Thane hasn't been so fortunate, and he's been operating on a shoestring budget. The other, but the problem with Thane, though, is that some of the people who are interested in what he's doing, they've asked him to do some fairly simple setups um, to, to, I guess, further uh, lend credibility to what he's claiming. And the problem with Thane is that he currently operates his setup by having an electric motor plugged into the wall, and then he he connects this into something that is his basically his generator. He calls it the parapetia generator. And uh, people who observe this notice that when he kind of connects things, that it speeds up, and he's reducing power into it, and it's actually speeding up. And he's got all of these little measurement devices showing this happening, and it looks cool. But the next step is obvious. Have this thing set up so that once you get it going, you unplug it from the wall, and it's self-sustaining. And uh, and at this point, he, he hasn't been able to show that. And he's been showing the same experiments um, for, for about four years. I haven't seen much of a modification uh, of, of his setup. And I think after a while, people start to go, okay, we've, we've seen this before, but you're not improving upon it, and you're not, you're not giving us the kind of data that we need to take it to the next level. When you try to get him to take it to the next level, he gets defensive, and that's where his personality changes a bit. He becomes a little bit um, more put offish, he he becomes more cagey, and he he can actually um, begin insulting people, and that just turns some some individuals away. And I found that he's a he's great at establishing relationships with people and getting people interested at the beginning, um, but then that relationship 
soon goes sour, and there's never really follow through with the projects that he starts. Uh, that that is unfortunate because uh, I think if uh, if if a Morgan type individual, some a moneyed person, uh, could get behind him and. Uh, uh, someone could get to Thane and inject some, some, some discipline, some scientific rigor, and allow him maybe to adjust his objectives, uh, because as far as he's concerned, the only thing he's interested in is ending our dependency on foreign oil. Uh, and, of course, he's concerned about uh, fighting wars over foreign oil, which, of course, is very commendable. And he's uh, uncompromising on that position. Yes, yes. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of the other individuals uh, that you've um, you've showcased in the book Mad Like Tesla, and these are again underdog inventors that are are uh, pursuing uh, a form of clean energy. And let's go back to the the storage issue because that obviously is is a huge concern when it comes to generating uh, electricity. If you have surplus electricity, what do you do with it? Well, yeah, you have to basically put it into a battery or um, some kind of, uh, like in, in, in the case of the grid, uh, we have pump storage, which is you pump water up to a high reservoir and you hold the energy in the form of elevated water supply and then you let it drop down and kind of spin generators uh, as it's falling. Um, that's kind of a, an old you know, mechanical form of, of energy storage, but... Uh, we're, these days, you don't have a lot of places in the world where you can do that. So we're increasingly looking at battery, uh, electrochemical storage, um, things like flywheels. And uh, there's a company I, I talk about in the book called eStore uh, from Cedar Park, Texas, that uh, is trying to develop a, kind of a hybrid uh, electrochemical battery and ultracapacitor that has a, a amazing energy density. Uh, they claim that it will be able to have uh, 10 times the energy density of a lead-acid battery, but at one-tenth the cost, which would allow you to power an electric vehicle and uh, have it go 500 miles uh, before it needs to be recharged. And because it's got the capacitor element to it, it would be a quick recharge, not like a battery where it takes, you know, um, for four to eight hours, depending on the type of charge system that you have uh, to, to charge up the battery. This would be, you know, within within a couple of minutes. You could just fill up as quickly as you fill a car with gasoline today. Uh, so these guys are trying to do something um, quite incredible, uh, but they started a few years ago, and uh, as, as I say in the book, we're, we're kind of still waiting. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a drama that continues to unfold with no seem, seeming ending. Well, what's the stumbling block? Because, I mean, the, those are the two issues, right, is, is the time it takes to, uh, to recharge your car battery and also the, the, um, the distance that it'll drive before it needs to be recharged. And if you could get 500 miles out of a single charge, yeah. uh, that would be huge. It'd be, it would be a game changer. So, so what's, what's the problem? What's the holdup? Well, I think a lot of people recognize that you can, you can reach these kinds of energy densities when you're in a very controlled lab environment, right? Uh, the difficulty is when you're trying to create a commercial product out of this. And, and the, that's been the problem that eStore has had. It's, it's claimed to have these certain milestones um, that it has met or that is going to meet, and it's either delayed those milestones um, or it's just gone, gone through periods of silence where we don't really know what's going on there. And it, and it has led to a lot of speculation. Some people think that you know, maybe eStore has uh, run out of money, maybe eStore has always been a scam, uh, maybe eStore is, uh, is, has suddenly gone quiet because it's got um, a partnership, and it does have a partnership with Lockheed Martin. And perhaps there's some 
um, military aspects to this that has forced it to go a little bit underground and, and develop products for military purposes until the the, um, the less stringent commercial applications emerge. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's amazing. This is this is an extraordinary company in, in the sense that it's developed this huge following on the Internet. There's websites devoted to it, and people speculate and exchange information. They try to dig up every little tidbit of info about this company to get a sense of where it's at. And um, you've got the skeptics and, and the, uh, the supporters alike uh, debating online. Um, and... Uh, it, it, it has it has become a soap opera, and there's a particular website called the theestory.com that documents anything and everything. It's like a Wikipedia for this company, and um, uh, but a lot of people are starting to lose the faith because it's. I think they're about three years overdue with some of their original milestones. All right, Tyler, we'll take another time out. Tyler Hamilton joins us here on the Conspiracy Show. The author of Mad Like Tesla: Underdog Inventors and Their Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Tyler Hamilton is an author, adjunct professor, award-winning energy and technology writer for the Toronto Star, where for six years he's been one of Canada's leading voices on green technology issues and trends through his weekly column. You can also read his blog at cleanbreak.ca. And we're talking about his uh, book, Mad Like Tesla, Underdog Inventors and the Relentless Pursuit of Clean Energy. Uh, Tyler, we were talking about uh, nuclear energy um, a while ago. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the scientists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, of course, set the, the world on its, uh, on its head. Gosh, I think we're going back nearly 30 years now mm-hmm. when um, they announced that they had produced something called cold fusion. Where are we in that whole uh, in that whole discussion? Because um, some scientists claim that they were able to repeat the experiment. Others said, no, it can't be. It's not repeatable. Uh, and then it just sort of, you know, disappeared off the, uh, the, the, the front pages. Where are we in that whole debate? Well, it's funny. Right after their original claims, some scientists uh, did try to replicate it and, and, and couldn't do that, and then that led to a series of government reports dismissing it as a, as a hoax. Um, but then uh, a lot of time passed, and I, I think that cold fusion didn't go away. What happened was the media went away. There wasn't, there's no attention to it. So anytime there is an announcement related to cold fusion, it just never really surfaced. Um, we're seeing a little bit more of it now because we have the Internet and we have blogs and people who have their own interest in following these things, are, are, are tracking them. And we are seeing increasingly stories coming out of Japan and Italy, for example, uh, experiments uh, going on. I, uh, one individual by the name of Rossi uh, doing it in Italy uh, with his partner, I forget his name at the moment, and a professor out in Japan as well. And um, they seem to be making progress. So there's also some researchers, uh, MIT has a, a couple of uh, professors there who continue to pursue cold fusion in, in silence, but largely they're kind of treated like lepers at these conferences, and they don't really talk much about their research because they're afraid to be uh, ridiculed by their peers. So it's still kind of an underground thing, but it, the, the research is still going on. Explain briefly what cold fusion is. 
Well, basically, it's just the ability to create a reaction in an environment um, where you don't really have any kind of uh, heating up of, 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 of a room or, you know, a machine or, or a liquid. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of happening on a, on a tabletop in just normal ambient temperatures. And more energy is coming out than the energy that's put in. And it's all about different, different reactions that can't be explained through what we normally know, know uh, through chemical reactions. So um, there's not one type of, of cold fusion. Uh, there's, there could be different things and different catalysts used that accomplish the same goal. Uh, but the general idea is more more energy is coming out than going in, and it's happening at kind of normal ambient temperatures. And as as Pons and Fleischmann have they ever backed away from their claims, or what has happened to them? Well, actually, not soon after the um, the original um, claims, they kind of went into seclusion, and um, I believe one became a consultant. I, I really don't know <laughs> what they're doing nowadays. Another one moved to Europe and. and But I, I, I honestly haven't tracked their, their progress. Do you think, I mean, you've been covering this beat for, for quite a while, and, and obviously, you know, you and I both know, when you talk to some of these backyard tinkerers or, or uh, Tesla wannabes, there is, I don't want to use the word paranoia, um, but there is a sort of a conspiratorial mindset there. I'm wondering, do you think, is there any justification for that? Um, you know, there, there's a quote I use in my book, and it's taken from one of my favorite movies um, called Rumblefish. It's Francis Ford Coppola book, and uh, there's a character that asks his, his father whether his mother was crazy, and his response is is that um, having an acute perception doesn't make you crazy, but it can drive you crazy. And I think that I think that often people become paranoid um, if the, after many many years of trying things and not getting anywhere, they start to think that it's, it's people from the outside that are holding them back, that there's some kind of conspiracy. There's, you know, whether it's established interests in industry or whether it's government not wanting something to surface. Um, so I, I, I think a, a part of it is paranoia, but I also think that, you know, we know how companies are. We know that uh, some companies purchase patents and put them on the shelf because they don't want the competition to emerge. Uh, we know that there are some... Uh, instances in history where the government has 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 buried something because they don't want the the concept to to be known amongst the general public either for for a, you know national security reasons or you know whatever. So I think that there's a certain amount of justification, but I think to the largest extent it's uh, it's paranoia. What about when it comes to the cold fusion issue? There was um, uh, Eugene Maloff. Uh, who, who published a, uh, a magazine on, on cold fusion, and uh, there was some speculation. In fact, I, I, um, I spoke to Eugene just weeks before he was uh, uh, murdered in his home, the apparent victim of a, uh, a break-and-enter, although I'm sure you've heard the rumor mill, that uh, some speculation that he was knocked off as part of this far-reaching conspiracy to suppress cold fusion. Well, you know, I, I can't comment on, on, on whether he was killed by, you know, some, some nefarious organization trying to suppress cold fusion, but, um, you know, I can say that there's obviously interests out there that don't want to see these things emerge. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's a, 
I think it's a, a stretch because you could also argue that there are companies out there that might want to take these technologies and say this is a way for us to distinguish ourselves from our competitors. And if this indeed is something that's going to disrupt the world, uh, I'd rather have it in my hands, right? Um, but if, if if they can't get it into their hands, sure, sure, maybe they if, if it can't be theirs to have, then perhaps they figure out ways to prevent it from ever emerging. Um, I, I honestly don't uh, buy into a lot of conspiracy theories, but I can see why people do. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not somebody that 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 usually goes down that path, but I don't blame people who do. <laughs> I guess I'll leave it at that. Well, if you can avoid it, <laughs> I would strongly recommend not going down that path. Yeah, you sleep yeah. much better at night, I can assure yeah. you. <laughs> uh, Tyler Hamilton is with us, Mad Like Tesla, underdog inventors in the relentless pursuit of clean energy. And speaking of uh, of, uh, of fusion, uh, tell me about General Fusion and, and Michel Leberge in, in Vancouver, what he's up to. Well, he's trying to take an idea that was first uh, thought up uh, back in the 70s by the uh, U.S. Naval Research Lab and it's this idea of creating a fusion reaction through through mechanical means, and this is basically by by uh, well, actually, I should I should describe the general idea of what they're working on. So instead of instead of using these uh, super expensive uh, magnets to contain uh, plasma, uh, plasma um, in a chamber and heat it up to create a, a fusion reaction, or or instead of using a sophisticated uh, system of, of, of dozens and dozens of, of lasers to, to, to kind of hit a target and, and stimulate a fusion reaction um, at the cost of billions and billions of dollars. These guys in Vancouver have decided to take a mechanical approach in, in creating what in essence is a thermonuclear diesel engine. Uh, so the setup is basically this. They've got this, uh, imagine a sphere, a metal sphere that's uh, that's spinning and it's got a a mixture of uh, lithium and lead in the middle, and as it spins, it creates this kind of, uh, you know, um, a passage through the center, kind of like a, you know, water going down a, a drain. It creates this 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 tornado, this swirl, and it creates this air gap. And and on each side of the air gap, they inject uh, plasma, and as the plasma moves towards the center and reaches the center, they then have these large pneumatic rams on the outside of the sphere that hit the outside of the sphere at the same time. It has to be precise. Has, you know, timing has to be super precise. And as it hits the sphere, it sends a shock wave through the sphere, through the lead-liquid mixture, and it eventually accelerates as it gets to the center, and then it compresses the, comp- the plasma so much that it, it heats up and it creates a, a fusion reaction. The heat that results from that fusion reaction gets absorbed by the lead-lithium, and the lead lithium constantly gets pumped out and replenished. And when it gets pumped out, they use heat exchangers to extract the heat, and that heat is used to, to create steam that you know, turns a generator and produces electricity. But there's no fancy lasers. There's no you know, expensive magnets. This is a pure mechanical approach to fusion. The reason why it couldn't be done back in the 70s when it was first conceived is that they didn't have the, the technology available, the server control systems, the digital signal processing, so this uh, guy, Michel Leberge, who was working in that interest, in that industry, he was actually working at a printing company called Creo. He was an expert in all of this stuff, but he also happened to have a, a, a Ph.D. in plasma physics, which not a lot of people have. And he had a midlife crisis in his, you know, when he turned 40, and he decided, I'm going to start a, a nuclear fusion company. And 
he did some research, came up with this patent that had been filed in the 70s and decided he was going to modernize it and, and, and uh, use some of the technologies that he was aware of today to make it happen. Right now they're tinkering away in a facility in Burnaby, uh, B.C., and they're, they've got funding now from Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, founder of Amazon.com, and a bunch of other investors after a long haul and after a lot of skepticism. And um, they're trying to make good on, on having a prototype of this system done by 2016 at a cost of $50 million versus the $30 billion that international consortia are, required, are requiring for what they're trying to do. Got to take a break, but very quickly, if this thing comes to market, I mean, is it a game changer? How would it change our world? <laughs> it would, well, it would change our world. It would, first of all, it would, it would eliminate our need for, for coal-fired or fossil fuel-fired generation. And uh, it would eventually replace uh, traditional fission-based nuclear. This this would this would be a game changer because it would have uh, none of the nuclear toxic legacy waste that we have from from fission reactors, and it would be an emission-free process. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk about harnessing solar energy from space and creating man-made tornadoes and harvesting the resulting energy, all part of Mad Like Tesla, underdog inventors, and the relentless pursuit of clean energy with Tyler Hamilton, right here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Tyler Hamilton stays with us as we discuss underdog inventors and their pursuit of clean energy. And uh, Tyler, I'd have to say that uh, uh, covering a little bit of this beat myself for the last 10, 12 years, one of the things that, have, that has come down the pipe that I've, you, I'm sure you've heard about it long before I have, mm-hmm. but that this is something that has me really excited because I think of all the things I've heard in the clean energy field, this is the one that could happen if we if we all set our minds to it, I mean, the, the capital expenditure would be absolutely enormous, but the payoff, I'm talking about harnessing solar energy from space. What, 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 uh, how, what is that, what's behind this idea? How would it work? Well, we know today when we have solar panels on the ground that um, it's not ideal, right? You've, you've got clouds that block the sun, you've got nighttime, um, in places like China, you've got pollution that block out the sun. So that kind of limits the potential for, for solar energy on this planet. Um, even systems like they imagine in the desert in the Middle East and North Africa called Desert Tech, um, it's a project uh, there. Uh, the idea is to, to build like thousands and thousands of megawatts of, of, of solar and have it uh, distributed over vast distances uh, throughout Europe and Africa. Um, that's still subject to the to the nighttime and to clouds. So, the idea behind space-based solar power is that you get beyond our atmosphere, right? You can turn solar into a 24-hour day baseload source of, of power generation. You've got the sun shining on them all the time. Uh, you beam that energy back down to Earth at receiving stations, and you you beam it to where it needs to be. So you can beam it through the oil sands. You can beam it into the middle of a desert somewhere. You can beam it. Uh, into uh, somewhere in the middle of uh, of, uh, of North America, um, you have a lot of flexibility there. So it, it's considered uh, an ideal way of harnessing renewable energy uh, because you don't have the issues of intermittency that are associated with with land-based solar or wind, for that matter. How much would it cost to put enough solar panels up there uh, in order to uh, to provide the Earth's energy needs? <laughs> 
don't have the exact figure, but I can certainly tell you it would be many trillions of dollars. Um, these these are not uh, inexpensive systems, and it's not any different really than what we have on Earth. But a huge part of the cost is the transportation, sticking them on rockets and having them shot up into space, and the, and the, the insurance and liability issues and, and all the fuel required to do that. So um, so that's what that's what makes it costly, but can have it up there these things will last longer than land-based system because they're not they're not subject to a lot of the elements here on earth and um, and they provide more electricity because they're giving you 24 hour a day um, uh, sunshine when you consider that only a tiny fraction of uh, the sun's energy each day is is being harnessed for energy and if you would just increase that s- slightly the efficiency I mean the, the sun could literally provide enough energy to run this planet in a couple of days. I mean, oh, a couple of easily, days worth of sunlight. Easily. Yeah, you know, obviously there's there's losses through you know solar panels and transmission, but um, but certainly if we can come up with an economical way to harness the sun, it would be uh, it would be a game changer. And there's there's guys that I've 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 profiled in the book that have an approach that they think can work. And obviously, with any technology, the more you do it and the more scale you get, uh, the more you expect costs to come down. So, so tell me, who, who is working on this in a big way? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a handful of companies, but one that attracted me was uh, a company called Solarin Energy. They're based in Los Angeles. And um, the reason why I was drawn to them is because they managed to convince PG&E, the largest utility in California, to sign a power purchase deal, which is basically a guarantee to buy the power that they produce if they end up producing it. Um, but part of that contract was to have them have a pilot plant in outer space by 2016 that was pumping 200 megawatts worth of power down to Earth or down to California. Um, and uh, I just thought the fact that they had a, a contract to purchase their power and the fact that they had a deadline to do it uh, made them a, a very interesting story. 200 megawatts, uh, how much is that? How much power? It's kind of equivalent to a uh, small-sized uh, coal plant, right? Um, it's not huge, right? But the, the idea is that they, they, they prove that they can build something of this size in outer space, and then you can expand from there. But you've got to keep in mind, uh, it, is, it is huge in the sense that it's, it's equivalent maybe of, um, of putting uh, 200, depending on the size of the wind tur- turbine, uh, 100 to 200 wind turbines, um, on a, on a solar farm. Now, how many solar panels would you need up there uh, in in order to let's just say you know Canada's energy needs? Mm-hmm. How many how many solar panels would you need up there? Oh, it would, be, it would clearly be millions and millions of solar panels, um, and that's what makes it a, a challenge because that adds weight to the to the launch cost. Um, NASA actually looked at doing this back in the uh, in the early seventies and and. And even into the mid '80s, and then they um, they they stopped funding research into it. And part of the problem was they said you just couldn't get it up there. They had they had two two models. One was that you would you would send the the supplies up there, and you'd actually have astronauts with like I don't know space age drills or something working. You know, hundreds of people actually assembling this stuff in outer space, and they they deemed that too costly because of the fact that you had to to put people up there. Um, these guys, Solarin, they have a different concept. They want it to be all automated. You build it on Earth, you pack it up tightly like you would a normal satellite, 
and uh, you have it kind of unfold like a large umbrella in outer space, and you have the various parts positioned with thrusters, um, and and basically have it all, you know, put together from a control station back on Earth. I mean, does this idea have uh, um, allure for you? I mean, are you jazzed about this, this, the potential for this one? You know, I have to say I was skeptical when I, before I, I approached these guys, and then I flew to California and I sat down with them, and, and it, once I got to know their background, these are, these are guys, you know, former engineers from the U.S. Air Force, from, from Hughes Electronics, from Boeing. Um, they know their stuff. Like, they've, they've had their careers built on building satellites um, for the U.S. government. So it's not like they're uh, a bunch of graduates from an MBA program coming up with this uh, idea and thinking that they can they can do it on on a whim. Like these these guys are very very methodical in how they've thought this through. One of the key innovations that I thought was neat compared to some of the early NASA research was um, was that they they have this as a, a free floating station because in, in past designs. They actually envisioned having copper, like connecting, like copper wiring, connecting all these panels and connecting the various pieces together. And these guys realized, well, copper weighs a lot. And we, if we get rid of all the wiring and we package this stuff tightly together and we have it free-floating so that we can concentrate the sun's light using large mirrors and, and really concentrate the sun's energy on a much smaller area, then we can reduce the weight by, you know, up to a half of what, what NASA envisioned. So that automatically lowers the cost by half. Plus, today we've got larger rockets, which are making it easier to, to get this stuff into outer space. Companies such as uh, SpaceX, the, the company founded by, uh, by Elon Musk, who's also the co-founder of Tesla Motors, um, he's, he's coming out with a heavy-lift rocket over the next few years that could... Uh, um, allow a company like Solarin to get its space-based solar power station up in space with about four launches, which is about, um, you know, compared to NASA, which envisioned 20 to 30 launches. So now you're starting to get into an area where it becomes uh, economical over the course of 20 or 30 years, which would be the lifetime, the expected lifetime of this uh, solar-based power plant. Do, do you see uh, governments around the world getting behind this? Because this is going to take a huge... Uh, infusion of capital. You mentioned trillions and trillions of dollars, and something like that. I mean, we tend to think that uh, uh, you know the aerospace uh, or you know microchips, these huge uh, industries that came out, you know, out of the fifties and the sixties and so forth, uh, were created in a vacuum by private capital alone. But no, I mean, believe me, I'm I'm certainly not a socialist, and I'm not a big guy on uh, government intervention. But this is an area that does require government. Uh, intervention and government capital and so forth. The, are governments around the world getting behind this? Well, this is funny. Um, Japan is actually getting behind it. They've declared that they want to uh, pursue this with a little bit more vigor. Uh, the U.S. Um, hasn't really come on board since it, you know, it had. I think its last big study on it was back in 2001, 2002, and they were still somewhat, you know, skeptical, skeptical about whether it would work. But here's the thing about the Solarin guys. They decided that Forget about the government, right? The reason why we're, we're not willing to go ahead is because we're, the space industry has, has relied too much on government, right? They, they think that the best approach is to, is to get the private sector on board. So they're going out trying to get private financing, and they're like, you know what, the government moves too slow. By the time they can make a decision, we're going to be up there. So they're taking a dramatically new approach, and, it, and it's interesting because they find that 
they're the they're the black sheep at at conferences around around uh, this particular area because they they they're not like a lot of the armchair government scientists who go to these conferences and talk freely about you know ways of doing this and you know to these Solarian guys that's all academic you know we're 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 beyond that we want, we actually want to do something um, but they're at the same time not willing to reveal too much detail about how they plan to do it and that's for obvious reasons because it's proprietary. As, as uh, Gary Spurnak, the CEO of Solarin, said to me, it's not like GE goes to a conference and, 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 and tells, Tushi, uh, sorry, tells uh, Toyota um, what its next car is going to look like and how it's going to build it, right? If you start becoming a private sector venture, you stop going to these government conferences and stop telling people what your secret sauce is. Exactly. Well, yeah. I wish them uh, I wish them all the luck because we need that technology sooner than later. Uh, we'll come back. A few more questions remain for Tyler Hamilton, author of Mad Like Tesla, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Tyler Hamilton here on The Conspiracy Show. Mad Like Tesla is the book. And uh, once again, Tyler is an author, adjunct professor, award-winning energy and technology writer for the Toronto Star, where for six years he's been one of Canada's leading voices on green technology issues and trends through his weekly column. You can also read his blog at Break. Couldn't let you go without talking about this idea to create man-made tornadoes and <laughs> harvest the resulting energy. Tell me about this one. I love this story. Um, I was approached by a guy out in Sarnia, Ontario, a retired engineer. He used to work at the Esso refineries in Sarnia. And um, he has this idea where he wants to take the waste heat from, say, a fossil fuel generating plant or a nuclear station or, or a normal industrial process like a cement plant. And uh, and he he wants to pump this heat into uh, a big big arena, kind of like a cooling tower for a nuclear station, but specifically designed for this process. And the idea being is that you get this heat spinning in this big concrete arena, and as it spins, it starts to rise. And as it rises, it starts to you know through natural convection, it starts to you know go after the colder air in the in the upper atmosphere. And the idea is, if, if it works as he expects it will work, it will create a tornado. And this thing will kind of take on a life of its own. And, you know, you start off pumping the hot air into this arena, and eventually, as it kind of creates its own life, it starts to suck air into this arena. And the fans that initially push the air become uh, turbines that generate electricity. And the idea is you can start generating electricity from this man-made tornado. 
Um, I just thought it's a a fascinating idea, and it's really hard to wrap your head around the concept of of having a a tornado beside a a power plant. But he claims that you can can dramatically improve the efficiency of any any, uh, thermal power plant using this process. I mean, is it scientifically valid? I mean, can you create a tornado inside, indoors? Yeah, you certainly can. It's not indoor. It's like an open-topped uh, arena, right? Oh, okay. So it stretches out into it. But, but you keep it high enough. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a pen, you know, that keeps this thing contained. And, and you, the goal is to keep it from hopping the pen, right? And I think that's part of the, the fear, the perception that, you know, can you control this thing? But I've talked to I've talked to, to top climate scientists. Kerry Emanuel is one of the top climate scientists in the United States about this, and, and he's uh, he's talked with this uh, this inventor. His name is Louis Michaud, and he's uh, he says there's nothing impossible about it. You know, this can work. Um, the The only things that are preventing it from working are certain perceptual barriers that that it's dangerous or that it's going to uh, uh, you know that this thing's going to hop its pop its pen like Godzilla going through Tokyo, and it's just going to destroy things. And I think it's hard for the average person to get around that. Is there a, um, a story or an idea that, that you've covered, maybe it's in the book, maybe not, um, Tyler, something that we haven't talked to yet, uh, talked about yet, but has you very excited in terms of its potential for providing uh, a clean, abundant, cheap energy? Oh well, that's a that's a tough one because I have interest in in various areas and and not not all of them are as disruptive as some as some of the ones that I mentioned in this book. Um, but there's ones that certainly get me excited and, and I'm particularly interested in the area of storage. Um, and just in my own uh, you know neighborhood, uh, there's a couple of companies trying to do innovative things around storage. One guy has invented a flywheel that that truly um, truly is like the ultimate flywheel. This thing doesn't lose its its, its its capacity, its uh, its ability to spin. There's very low friction, and uh, compared to other flywheel systems on the market, this this could be a real uh, uh, disruptive technology. There's another guy who's placing um, uh, large uh, inflatable bags under Lake Ontario, and he's he's building a kind of uh, reverse pump storage system where you fill these things up with air, and uh, and then when you need to generate electricity, you let the weight of the the water from the lake compress. This air out of the bags and into a um, into a, a contraption that that captures this pressure and turns it into electricity. Um, these are really innovative approaches. They're not going to save the world, um, but I think that we need a lot of different approaches. You know, targeting specific areas. It's like as you say, it's going to be a buckshot approach. It's not a silver bullet, but we need a lot of silver buckshot to deal with our energy problems. So, I mean, after covering this beat, are you? Are you positive about our, our future in terms of future energy needs, uh, uh, climate change, and so forth? Well, I'm from a technology perspective, and and you know the ability of us to invent things that can deal with these problems. I'm I'm super positive. I think I think the solutions are out there. I don't think technology is the barrier. I think it's our own perception. I think it's I think it's the problem with the markets. The fact that we we have very few. Um, people willing to pay to take these risks. Um, uh, everybody wants incremental innovations. They, they, they're not willing to, to bet it all on something that's going to save our hides. And I think that's the big problem. The real money lies in pension funds, right? And pension funds are notoriously uh, conservative when it comes to investing. And we don't really have um, that many, you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffetts in the world that are willing to put their money to these causes. So. 
I think that it's one of these things where we let a lot of things um, die on the vine, and and that's going to be the big barrier to overcome. Is that can we as a society um, be open-minded enough and, and be willing to take the risks that will unlock the potential of a lot of these innovations? And and the next big game changer, whether we're talking about uh, clean energy or some other technological breakthrough that could be a game changer, is it? I mean, if you were a betting man, is it more likely to come out of some lab and you know, backed by um, you know, money, uh, government money, or so forth, or is it more likely to come from one of these backyard tinkerers that are sort of these Tesla wannabes? You know, the. The problem with the Tesla wannabes is that they can't rise up. Like there's just there, there's so much going against them, and they they have they have so many hurdles to jump that it makes you wonder whether they're ever going to be seen. Um, I think that these people that are considered like Tesla wannabes, they have to work. You know, as much as they hate to do it, they have to work with a lot of these institutions, whether it be the military or or other government labs um, and, and, and big companies. And I think increasingly, as companies realize we're, we're, we're hitting a brick wall on a lot of resource issues, whether it's energy or minerals or, you know, um, you know with the growth of China and, and a lot of the uh, issues we have with rare metals, for example, rare earth metals, I think that industry is going to start realizing, you know, we have to start taking some chances, and I think they're going to seek out a lot of these individuals and be willing to spend more money on, 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 on greater risks. And I'm hoping that's the way things will turn out. I, I, I can't say whether or not we'll, we'll reach that stage, but we have a lot of serious problems, and I think at some point we're going to have to wake up and deal with them. Uh, Tyler, I really enjoyed a conversation. What, what's next? What are you working on? You know what? I, I'm, I'm thinking of taking a shot at, uh, at, um, at fiction, try to, try to attract people to a lot of the uh, energy and climate issues that we're dealing with through fiction, because I... I think as much as uh, nonfiction is the uh, way to, um, to educate people, I think you can reach a, a greater audience by spinning it into an interesting yarn. Hey, maybe you could write the sequel to uh, The Formula, yeah, that great yeah. movie with uh, <laughs> exactly. George C. Scott and Marlon Brando. <laughs> I'll have to give that one some thought. All right. Tyler, again, congratulations on Mad Like Tesla. How do people get a hold of the book? Amazon.com, Indigo. Uh, you can pretty well, well get it in any bookstore. All right. Well, it's it is a terrific uh, a terrific book. And uh, again, I thank you for tonight. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Take care. Coming up next, accounts of death rays used by the Romans in 214 BC during the siege of Syracuse. The use of modern like surgery practices on England's Prince Hal, King Henry V, from a war wound in 1402. Lamont Wood, the author of Out of Place in Time in Space is about to join us to talk about inventions, beliefs, and artistic anomalies that were impossibly ahead of their time. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show on AM740. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM740. As a journalist and freelance writer of wide experience, Lamont Wood is familiar with the sometimes arbitrary distinction between cause and effect and the subsequent gulf between what happens, what is experienced, what gets written, and what is understood. 
He's been freelancing for nearly three decades, writing for publications ranging from American Heritage to trade journals in Hong Kong. He's also been a newspaper reporter, a publicist, and a welder. He lives in San Antonio, Texas, and his latest book is Out of Place in Time and Space, Inventions, Beliefs, and Artistic Anomalies that Were Impossibly Ahead of Their Time. Lamont Wood, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm glad to be here, frankly. So we're talking about anachronisms. Is that correct? Things that are that, that is exactly correct. And in fact, uh, in researching the book, I, I came up with a sort of a, a high concept that I call uh, reverse anachronisms. Uh, usually, when you say anachronism, you're talking about um, uh, movies about Rome, and you look in the background, and there's people wearing sunglasses or something. That's a, an anachronism, but there's nothing threatening about it. It's because they got sloppy basically when they made the movie. And they depicted something from the present and the past. Well, I came up with the idea of reverse anachronism, which would be something from the present that you find in the past, not just being depicted there. And um, a good and a good a good example, um, my favorite one probably is the one I lead off with, uh, chapter one, so-called "Virgin and Child of Toy Helicopter," and it's a painting that's been hanging in a museum in France, probably for centuries now, um, fairly conventional. A church painting that shows, among other things, the Christ child sitting in the lap of the Madonna. Uh, except in the last few decades, uh, there's something about that that leaps out at us that they probably didn't notice in previous centuries. Because we look at the Christ child and see that he's playing with a pull string flying toy helicopter, which is pretty weird considering the painting was made in 1460. We're talking about those old uh, whirly birds that we used to get as kids. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And, uh, and, of course, we see them as toy helicopters because helicopters are part of our present. How does that <laughs> make it show up in 1460? Now, people point out to me that, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, was known for having depicted uh, a flying helicopter idea. But he was eight years old when this was made. Um, and the fact that the artist put it in there must have in meant that he assumed people would look at it and say, oh, it's a toy. Uh, the, the person holding that must be the Christ child because he has a toy. And and also allowed him to put in a sort of a crucifix theme because the thing has four blades. Um, so it must have been uh, something you would assume in 1460 uh, was a toy. It was something fairly common circulation. Uh, but no one tr seriously tried to make a, <laughs> a flying machine like that for you know the, another four centuries or so. A, a theme I ran across researching the book is that um, children's toys are apparently like beneath uh, serious uh, study. They're considered too frivolous, apparently. But they, they may, in fact, embody high technology, including this, a flying machine, centuries before I built one, uh, seriously, to carry a man. And I also discovered that uh, the Greeks and Romans had uh, steam-powered toys, although they, as far as we can tell, never thought of using them to do actual work. And um, we've all heard of these uh, wheeled toys they find in tombs from central Mexico, from cultures that did not themselves use wheeled transport, although they probably had good reason. They didn't have good roads and draft animals, et cetera. But it um, makes me wonder what the kids are playing with nowadays, basically. Should we be paying attention a little more? You know what I mean? Let me go back to these steam-powered toys you, you mentioned the ancient Greeks had, Lamont. What did right. they look like? Um, they look like spinning tops that stayed in place with steam coming out of them. 
they would have uh, steam vented into them from a little boiler uh, into this device that, that this basically sat there and, and spun as the steam came out of it. And uh, a Roman writer also mentions little uh, bronze balls with a little hole in it, and you, you, you fill it with water and you put it in the fire, and eventually steam cart starts coming out of it, and they go whizzing off and just across the floor. Um, now, the, the first one, the, the spinning thing, well, the, the stationary one attached to a boiler, presumably could have be put a belt on it and gotten real work out of it attached to a pumper or something, fan, anything. But that, that apparently just never came up. You know, it was, uh, as far as we can tell, yeah, they never used it. Um, and people say things like, well, you know, they had plenty, they, they had economy based on, you know, slave labor or, uh, I think it's more like if they had used it, it the deforestation would have been worse, you know what I mean? They may not have welcomed such a thing. Um, you say that this has never been seriously studied because uh, scholars find the, the, the subject of advanced toys to be too, um, I don't know, just not, not important enough. Yeah, I mean, just, just throughout history, people don't pay that much attention to toys. But then what we find, some of them, they leap out at us, out at us, we realize they represent uh, fairly advanced uh, concepts. Although, like I say, this, uh, my book, of course, is called Out of Place in Time and Space. And it has about 40 different chapters in it, but only about two of them are about toys. The rest are about the, the other reverse anachronisms I'm talking about. Um, some of them are pretty mind-boggling. Uh, some of them are uh, really engineers uh, getting ahead of themselves. And some of them are really hard to explain. Um, I try to stick with, you know, Occam's razor. Uh, you're probably familiar with William Occam, medieval philosopher, who basically said that uh, all other things be equal. Uh, the simplest explanation is the one to go with, the one that involves uh, making the fewest assumptions. Now, as you're aware, that's not always the correct one. <laughs> if you got, get involved in politics or biochemistry or something like that, there can be very uh, complicated explanations for something that are true. But generally, you have to go with the simpler one, uh, barring anything else. Um, well, let's employ Occam's razor for a moment, uh, Lamont. In, right. in the, the, the depiction of uh, Jesus as a boy playing with what appears to be a toy helicopter. Right, right. Uh, well, Occam's razor would say that what what we have here uh, is a powered whirly gig, basically, and uh, there's nothing really paranormal about this. Um, well, and of course, the artist put it in there for two reasons: uh, one, to show that the person sitting in the lap there is actually a child, because uh, the, the artistic uh, fashions at the time was that you know children were depicted as scale model adults. So you, you wanted something to show that this is a child. And two, it, it was a good way to put in a crucifix thing because the, uh, the helicopter has four blades. But beyond that, uh, I presume uh, it was seen as a toy because it was probably derived from a whirligig, which, is, of course, is this blade thing on a stick, and you wave it or hold it up in the wind, and it'll turn and make noise and flash colors at you. Well, if you take it off the stick and spin it by hand, you can you probably make it fly. You put some, you know grease and elbow grease into it and that would be entertaining and uh, and here in this case someone has gone a step beyond it and put a little uh, handle on it and a pull string and uh, and allow you to get pretty good leverage probably get some pretty good RPM on it when you pull that string 
and probably send it flying up to the ceiling. It would be great entertainment for a small boy who had no access to video games or TV. So anyway, that's what I would think, uh, think Occam's razor leads us to uh, with this particular example. Now, I have some other examples in the book where Occam's razor is no help at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm the first to admit that. I mean, I just, you just run right into a wall, basically, and I cannot we'll come up with those. We'll get to those okay. where Occam's razor is no help at all in all right. just a moment. Uh, Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serra, back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Okay. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. We're here with Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space, Inventions, Beliefs, and Artistic Anomalies that Were Impossibly Ahead of Their Time. Uh, Lamont, we were talking about steam, uh, steam-driven steam toys, but let's, let's talk about the Steam Age computer revolution, which sounds like uh, certainly an anomaly. Uh, what are we talking about? Actual steam-powered computers? That was the plan. They never really got to the point where they had a steam-powered computer operating, they did manage to uh, build various segments of it. This was in the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, a woman named uh, Ada Augusta Byron, Countess of Lovelace, uh, was involved in the program. Um, she, uh, her hobby was mathematics, basically. And she sat down and wrote what's now considered the first computer program in 1843. Now, the first real programmable electronic computer didn't come out until right after World War II, about, 18, about 1946, I mean, three years later. But it was like these people knew it was out there, and they were working toward it. They had an idea of it, but they couldn't quite pull it off. And, and you know, it's not like they were thinking along the same lines these people 100 years later. So she, uh, this, this woman wrote a computer program in, in a scientific paper, actually, on what computers could do. And it was the first one and the only one for the next century. Uh, it's as if she would uh, had was here in the future, had, had visited us, knew what we were up to, basically. But uh, and really wanted to get in on it, but weren't quite able to do so. Uh, it's kind of sad. They, they probably would have been able to build it. Uh, the uh, their plans were sound. Uh, components, comp parts of it had since been built, and they do work. Um, uh, the, uh, the calculator part of it. Uh, the, I think there's two different museums nowadays that have working versions of it. Uh, and they were going to expand on that with something that was actually programmable and you would feed in data and instructions, punch cards, much as IBM would be doing 100 years later. But um, they, they ran afoul basically of amateur uh, project management problems. They, they kept having what we call mission creep they, uh, they, they would come up with some, a set of plans, and, but before they could, could uh, actually bring it to fruition, they, didn't, they would then have a bunch more ideas, and they'd have to sit down and incorporate those. They were always chasing their tail, and finally the government cut them off. Basically, the, the British government had been funding them because they wanted a source of accurate uh, navigation tables uh, and the logarithm tables, which were used for navigation. Uh, and that was rather important to the British economy at the time. Nowadays, of course, we just turn them out with a computer, but that's what they were trying to do in 1843. But, and, but, uh, but even though they didn't quite get it there, all right. the 
all the fundamentals were in place that, w- that are used in a modern computer. I mean, Yes, it was all there. It would have run were, thousands of times slower, but it, it would have accomplished the task in front of them. What what kind of a computer language uh, are we talking about? They, I mean, they weren't using the Fortran or oh no, or, or no, it, it would have been you know something like uh, what they call a similar language or a machine language nowadays. I, I doubt if they would have had capacity to to bring it up to the level of a of a Fortran even. And, and they uh, but, uh, but she, the, the program she did write it wasn't really in a uh, a computer uh, program. It was a, a very detailed description of what needed to be done. And if you had a computer program a language, you could have taken that and translated it into whatever language it was in use. And the so, input, w- 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 again, they were using punched cards? They would have, yes. Uh, but they, they never quite reached the point where they, they uh, implemented that. Uh, punch cards were in use at that time in the weaving industry because they had fairly elaborate uh, automated uh, uh, looms, I think they're called, uh, for you know getting pat- weaving into patterns, you know, Adding colored thread and getting into patterns and, uh, and having, you know, colorful clothing, basically. How big did this thing have to be? How, I mean, how many parts and how much did it weigh? Um, the, um, uh, the models they have nowadays of just the arithmetic calculator part are like several times, about twice the size of uh, an upright piano, really. The, what, the, uh, the, the final goal of the actual programmable computer probably would have covered a tennis court. And uh, I'm not sh- I don't know the weight of it or if that's even applicable, uh, but it probably would have needed a small uh, steam engine uh, to turn the parts. So, so given that, do you think it's possible um, that you know, the, the computers that um, we now have in our, that are ubiquitous in our homes and so forth, that before they were released to the public, they may have been ready, uh, sitting on a shelf or someone, you know, deciding on the timing, waiting for the public to be ready, generations before they they came online. Uh, no, th- what what they were talking about in 1843 was what we call a mainframe, uh, a rather slow, loud, mechanical one. What we have nowadays on our desks are not mainframes; they are, are microcomputers using microprocessor chips. This is entirely different technology. Uh, even for the, the electronic mainframe that, that preceded them. Uh, now, uh, the, the lineage of, of these things is fairly well known. And in fact, it's in another chapter of the book because uh, some people in Texas actually built one about 1970 uh, from which uh, the, uh, um, the so-called X86 uh, dynasty uh, that we use nowadays for personal computers is derived. Lamont Wood is uh, with us, the author of Out of Place in Time and Space, Inventions, Beliefs, and Artistic Anomalies that Were Impossibly Ahead of Their Time. Um, I, I want to go back uh, in, in time a little bit because um, looking at the, the, the cover of the book, and uh, we started off in Chapter 1 talking about the, um, the famous painting, a depiction of a young Jesus holding a, what appears to be a whirlybird toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know this is something that you cover in, in, in the book, and that is the depiction uh, in, in Renaissance and medieval paintings mm-hmm. uh, of biblical scenes, perhaps the Virgin Mary, uh, mm-hmm. and, and what appears in the, in the background in the sky to be flying saucers or UFOs. Right, right. And there are a number of such pictures. Uh, again, like say, church art from the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. And, uh, and I examined several uh, examples of this in the book, and a whole chapter devoted to it. And what I have to point out 
uh, I sometimes feel like a what a children's party popping balloons when I talk about these things. You have to remember that what we're doing when we say, oh, that's a UFO or a flying saucer in that picture. We are taking our visual vocabulary and imposing it on somebody else who had an entirely different visual vocabulary. And obviously they're depicting uh, Bible scenes. And obviously the artist was paid to do that by a church official. And everything in there <clears throat> was probably dictated by the contract and needed to be, and nothing is there by accident. And I'm pretty sure he didn't throw something out there just because he'd seen a UFO the other day. Um, for instance, uh, the first one, uh, the one that's on the cover is the uh, uh, is the Nativity of Jesus with uh, John the Baptist, and, uh, and of course the uh, the Virgin Mary is there. And in the background, you see some landscape, which of course shows that she's in a, a barn and it's open, and you can see the landscape in the sky and in the distance there's some, some hills and there's this guy there with some sheep but of course that's right out of the bible story that uh, shepherds are watching their flocks by night and they're confronted with the heavenly host so this guy in the hill with sheep around him is reacting to something in the sky which looks vaguely oval and has uh golden rays coming out of it. so so obviously he's reacting to the heavenly host now how are you going to depict the heavenly host as an artist well, that's a good question, but at the time, it seemed fashionable to do it as a vortex of angels. Uh, and um, uh, sort of, in other words, sort of a, <laughs> a, a, uh, like a, a funnel cloud that would lead back to the divine presence. But, it, it's, but here on Earth, it would uh, basically be represented by a hole in the sky because, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the heavens went up to this, as far as they were concerned, this celestial sphere that surrounded the solar system on which the uh, fixed stars were positioned. And presumably the vortex came through there, made a hole and came down, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, that shows on a couple of the other pictures as well. Uh, and in one of them in the high, when you get the high res version from the, from, the, from the museum that owns it, and that cost about $150, I know, because I had to do it. And uh, yes, you can you can actually see it. There's there's actual angels in there, going in a circle with halos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, beyond that, these these pictures are filled with images that are completely lost on us, but I guarantee are all there uh, by on purpose. Um, one in chapter 36 uh, from uh, the year 1486, for instance, it shows the Virgin Mary in, in a room praying, and on the wall outside there's like a peacock, and on the ground there's a a cucumber and an apple. That must represent something, but we have no idea what. Um, and uh, outside the window, there's the uh, the archangel who's there for the Annunciation. And uh, but beside him, they're like trying to get his attention. There's, there's the uh, uh, the patron saint of the city in which the uh, in which the this the thing was was painted. And he has nothing to do with anything that happened in the Bible. They just threw him in for municipal boosterism. <laughs> so, in other words, you have to study these things carefully. They're not, they're not always what we think they are, because they didn't use our, uh, our modern uh, visual vocabulary. Uh, now, the one from 1350 is even more complicated than any of the others, because when you look at it, you think, oh, my gosh, there's a, like a mercury capsule above in either corner in the picture. Yeah. And, and there's a, 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 a crucifixion scene. But if you look at it, you see like a, Switching the original, uh, but I, as I explained in, in the book, uh, one of them is red and has a male 
figure in it. The other is silver and has a, fe a female figure in it. And the, the red one is moving toward the uh, crucifix. And the silver one is moving away. Uh, now, this is part of uh, Byzantine uh, uh, iconography, iconographic traditions. And in the, you see dozens of, uh, of crucifixion scenes uh, within the uh, uh, Byzantine church. Uh, well, something similar to that. They're not all identical, but usually it's red and male and silver and female. The red male image is the sun. The silver female is the moon. One is moving in one direction, one in the other. That is because the Gospels say that on the day of the crucifixion, it was dark from noon to 3 p.m. And just, these are the icons that show that the light is changing. Uh, of course, it was people. It was in the 1960s that people started painting. Uh, drawing attention uh, to the, those elements of this particular mural, which is and it's a monastery in Kosovo. Uh, and in the 1960s, of course, is when the uh, Mercury uh, program was in all the news. So suddenly they see something in there that looks like a Mercury capsule. Right. And uh, of course, it's a very crude one, but still, you know, it doesn't kind of leap out at you. But uh, to me, that's <laughs> the old joke about the locomotive line. Where, where your breathing sounds like a gas is steam locomotive. Well, no one reported this before about 1830 uh, or since about 1950. Uh, there were no steam locomotives for about 1830, and they used switched diesel after about 1950. So you don't, don't hear of steam locomotives long anymore. So I, I think it's something like that. It, it, was, it, it went with the times in the 1960s. All right. Seems like a, a pretty rational explanation. Yeah. Again, um, that's sticking to, sticking to Occam's razor. That's where it leads me. All right, well, we'll come back, and um, on the other side, I want to talk about uh, what appears to be an example of some pretty remarkable uh, facial surgery taking place in the um, 14th, 15th century. Oh, yeah, old Prince nice. Hal, we'll, we'll do that when, the, when we come back with Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space, right here on AM740. Zoomer Radio, The Conspiracy Show, continues after this. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serry on Zuma Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space, uh, stays with us. Uh, Prince, or sorry, King Henry V, right. um, as a uh, as a teenager, suffered right. some uh, facial disfigurement. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about uh, Prince Hal's modern surgery, Lamont. Well, yes, it's a. Uh, um, he was wounded in battle in 1403. Uh, he was shot in the face, left side of his face, um, below the eyeball, even with the, the nose, um, with a war arrow. Which are, these are nasty things. The uh, the arrowhead was heavy and designed to break to come away from the shaft. Uh, there, there was very little holding to the shaft. So basically, it would be stuck in your flesh and cause an infection and kill you. Very nasty. Um, uh, so, but um, he, being the heir to the throne of England, got medical attention that probably was, uh, you know, far, far and away better than anything available to anybody else. And the, the person 
who uh, treated him left an account of it. And uh, we can read his account. And it's very odd reading because we realize when we're reading it that he's talking about antiseptic surgery. And he's using all these things that we know are germicides. He doesn't say why he's using it, but we know, you know, that it would be a good idea to use them. He, he, he treats the wound with that, but with these germicides. Um, then he sat down and made what we would call a zero force insertion tool to remove the arrowhead um, that uh, actually screwed in some prongs into the inside of the arrowhead socket and grasp it from the inside of the socket and was then able to slowly pull it out of the wound. And then he applied more germicides and slowly closed the wound. And we have pictures of the guy painted as an adult and it does not show any disfigurement. Um, so he did everything right, but at, at, at no point in the account he left does he say why he did this. It was as if he, he either didn't want to give it away, or assumed that any, any educated reader knew why he was doing it, which is uh, even weirder. Um, uh, it's a mystery, basically, what's going on here. But uh, we, it obviously did happen. We know the guy was wounded. Uh, we know he went on and was king of England later. Uh, Shakespeare wrote some plays about him. Uh, and again, his surgeon wrote an account of what happened. But we're... <laughs> There's so many questions unanswered here. Well, when, uh, when, when did the um, sort of the antiseptic principle in in surgery come come about? Uh, not till 1877. 18, no, 1867 uh, uh, was the first uh, uh, medical uh, journal article written that described what we would now call antiseptic surgery. And this surgery was performed on Prince Hal in 1403? Yeah, 450 years earlier. Yeah. 450 so, years before? Yeah, before it was scientifically accepted, yes. Uh, uh, all right. Apply uh, Holcomb's razor to that, Lamont. Uh, I can't, except that apparently uh, this guy had what we call empirical knowledge. Now, um, and he had just the right accumulation of empirical knowledge. We know, like, that the Roman military surgeons would... Uh, uh, heat their instruments in a brazier, you know, like like they're like they're cooking hot dogs or something, uh, just before operating. They had learned that this cut down the rate of uh, post-operative infection. They didn't know why. Uh, they probably drove out bad spirits or something. But they did learn that if you did that, the results were a lot better. This is what what you call empirical results. Um, presumably, he had something like that behind him. Empirically, he knew, knew that these things. Uh, that he applied uh, 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 the various chemicals, uh, turpentine, honey, wine, etc., uh, would help it um, uh, wound uh, heal cleanly. He didn't know why. I'm quite sure no one knew what germs existed until the 1680s or something like that, I believe. So uh, he did not have that behind him. But beyond that, we don't know. You're right. Occam's razor doesn't help in this one. Um, Again, Occam's razor doesn't always lead to the right answer, and you, and you often need more data than you have to apply it. Now, I want to stick with the um, the 15th century. Oh, okay. Well, and, and uh, this is a manuscript that was produced by hand uh, in right. around 1420, right? Uh, before the printing press, obviously, was introduced right. in Europe. Tell right. me about the Voynich manuscript. Oh dear, uh, something else in 1420. Yes, and uh, something elsewhere. 
Hawkins razor does not help. Um, uh, I'm not sure anything else would either. Um, that is a, a manuscript that was, it surfaced about 1912, I think. Uh, it's called the Voynich Manuscript because uh, from the name of the uh, uh, rare book dealer who uh, brought it to light. Uh, it's from a dated 1420, it's about some, something more than 200 pages long. It's handwritten and hand illustrated. Of course, that's, this is before the invention of the printing press. So it is automatically made by hand. Uh, it's written in an alphabet uh, that appears nowhere else. Uh, it's written in a language whose rules can be identified, uh, but they are the rules of no known language. Um, the uh, text can be uh, subject to mathematical analysis that shows that it is not gibberish. It does show mathematical patterns that you would expect from a language. However, that is the only indication we have that it contains any meaning. No one has been able to, do, to decipher or decrypt it. And some of the leading lights in the field of uh, decryption uh, have studied it and tried to decrypt it and not come up with anything. Now, it's been suggested that you could get a similar effect by starting out with gibberish, uh, this, this random stuff, and encrypting it. You have to encrypting it and give it these mathematical patterns we see. And then when you did decrypt it, it would be still be gibberish. It still wouldn't mean anything. And uh, if you wanted to, you know, fool the CIA, or uh, that might be interesting. But I don't think there was an issue in 1420. Uh, so why go to all that trouble? Now the other thing is the illustrations. They often appear to be about something until you look at them carefully and you realize they're not about anything. Uh, there's like uh, uh, illustrations of botanical information, uh, pictures of plants, etc. They don't match any known plants. There are also uh, illustrations that appear to be astronomical information, star fields and stuff. They don't match, in any, don't match anything from, from astronomy that we know of. Um, you, you would think uh, with all these illustrations, they would eventually depict something real just because it would be easier, but it never happens. And there's these uh, schematics of very odd plumbing and a lot of pictures of naked women standing around doing just not doing anything. Uh, completely unerotic. And uh, so it doesn't make sense, basically, from any viewpoint. Now, um, well, I, you uh, know, I, had, I, I, knew, I knew someone in high school who actually invented his own language. Exactly, yes. Uh, it's called and apparently twins are able to do this. Uh, yes, right. So Absolutely. I mean, is there anything really remarkable in that? Well, um, it's called OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And people do that. And, um, uh, and, invent their own language and write books in it, for that matter. Usually, though, you can analyze the results and figure out what their native language was, because they don't, they think they're inventing a language, but really, it's, they're taking their own and, and embellishing it, in most cases. I mean, uh, and it would have syntax and patterns similar to their native language. Oh, I see. Right, right. Right. So, um, and, and then there's the illustrations. You, again, you think eventually they would, they would base it on something real. Uh, and that never quite happens in this case. Beyond that, again, this is made in 1420, and whoever did it had access to tools and skill that would not be particularly common in 1420, and they must have spent about a year on the thing uh, to create it, uh, all of which makes you wonder what's going on here. Now, presumably, it would only take one person who had the OCD and was in a position that should do this to pull it off, and they did, and did, they did it, and here it is. But the likelihood of that seems very low. Um, so we're left scratching our heads. We don't have a good explanation for this. Um, 
I use it as a uh, candidate for what I call uh, uh, reverse anachronism of the second kind I was talking about. Previously, I, I came up with this idea of the reverse anachronism, something in the present that shows up in the past. Well, logic would demand that there, there are things in the future that show up in the present, and logic would demand that if we came across them, we wouldn't understand them. We would think it was noise or, or write it off as something else, etc. Um, and maybe that's an example. Voynich manuscript. We have nothing in common with it, so we're really not in a position to really understand it. Um, now, a good example of the, the uh, both kinds of reverse mechanism would be the so-called Antikythera mechanism that was found on the seabed of the Greek island of Antikythera in 1901. And at first, they thought it was some, you know, broken clockwork mechanism. They didn't really understand it. <clears throat> it was a jumble of uh, corroded bronze gears. And um, now, 100 years later or so, uh, we understand what it is uh, because it's kind of come into synchronization with the present, more or less. It was a uh, ancient Roman computer, is what it was, a computer in the sense of a, an object where the, the programming is kind of built into the design, not a digital device that's that fully programmable. It, was, it did a number of things. The, the main uh, purpose of it was to reconcile the uh, solar and lunar calendar. Uh, which we still do nowadays. You know, you figure out when Easter is going to be by the lunar calendar, and then you give its date, you know, April so-and-so in the solar calendar. So uh, so we, we still actually do that. Um, so anyway, it, during, so in the last century or so, it's gone from a reverse, reverse anachronism from the future to a reverse anachronism from the present. Remarkable. Uh, Remarkable. You must be a lot of fun at cocktail parties. Uh, <clears throat> I talk too much. <laughs> You're very interesting to listen to. We'll take a time out. I want to come back and talk about one of my favorites uh, that's in the book. I've talked about it. Uh, it's one of those great riddles. Uh, mm -hmm. It involves the uh, the Sirius star system and a, um, a tribe from West Africa. We'll okay. talk about Sirius and the Dogon when we come back. Lamont Wood, author of Out of Place in Time and Space, right here on AM740, Zoomer Radio, and The Conspiracy Show. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Back with Lamont Wood, author okay. of Out of Place in Time and Space, Inventions, Beliefs, and Artistic Anomalies that Were Impossibly Ahead of Their Time. Let's talk about Sirius and the Dogon, the Sirius right. star system. This is the brightest star in the night sky. Right, right. And... There were things about this star cluster that this tribe in uh, in West Africa, uh, Mali, I guess it is, mm -hmm. knew right. that there was no way anyone could have known before the advent uh, of, the, of the Hubble telescope. Yeah, well, let me explain. Since about 1852, we've known that Cirrus has uh, it's a double star and it has a rather faint companion called Cirrus B, and uh, it's only you know like 10 arc seconds away from. Cirrus A, and Cirrus A is hundreds of times brighter than Cirrus B, so it took the, uh, one of the best telescopes of the time to, to notice it, basically. So uh, an anthropologist doing research in Mali in the uh, 1960s, I believe it was, came across a local medicine man who uh, uh, presented all, all the stuff about his worldview, and this included uh, information about Cirrus, and it seemed to indicate he knew it was a double star. Uh, and this has led to a lot of speculation about how these people could have known this. 
Um, but, uh, and it is all, it's quite intriguing, you know, did they have uh, telescopes at some time or their or their eyes that good? Maybe the Egyptians had knowledge that they did passed on to these people, although you're on the other side of Africa. Um, but uh, again, with this, and it's all very intriguing and everything, but again, this is one of those cases where I sometimes feel like I'm at the children's party popping balloons. Um, have you ever, uh, at night, you ever noticed the, uh, the Big Dipper up there in, in the north? Yes. Uh, okay, the, the second star in the handle is a double star. Have you ever noticed that? Yes, I have. Okay. Those two stars are 60 times farther apart than Cirrus A and B. And those two stars, being able to, to notice them, it's usually a sign of good eyesight, but um, uh, to to see Sirius A and Sirius B without a telescope, you probably need eyeballs about six inches in diameter. I mean, it's, it's just not going to happen, basically. And it's been pointed out, but you know, these people in Mali, uh, they've been serving the French army since World War One. Some of them have gone to university. There's plenty of opportunity for cross-cultural contamination, and uh, later anthropologists trying to follow up. Basically, do a blank. The, the the people they interviewed had no idea what you're talking about. Never heard of Cirrus or, or anything about it. Um, so so just uh, again, kind of falls apart. Uh, the guy he, that was interviewed, like I said, the local medicine man, apparently did know about it, but it's probably not very mysterious. Uh, like I said, I'm in full contact with uh, French culture uh, for several generations, and uh, and it's been in the astronomy books. Uh, uh, for more than 100 years, that's a double star. So uh, the fact that he would know about it is really not mysterious. That's what, what I'm getting at here. So, uh, uh, so drawing all these paranormal, you know, uh, conclusions from stories, I'm afraid not <laughs> not well founded. One, one of the, one of the, the, the myths, of course, is that uh, these this particular uh, tribe were were visited from. Uh, by extraterrestrials, perhaps, from the Sirius star system. Uh, Was it not also um, a part of their creation story as well, that some star visitors came to the planet and and they Um, imparted this information to them? uh, What he got from the... uh, uh, No, not in this case. They may show up elsewhere, but what um, uh, surfaced... Uh, from with this anthropologist, from this medicine man, was fairly elaborate uh, worldview based on duality, and uh, and of course Sirius had to have a dual nature apparently, as is you know humanity and uh, et cetera et cetera, uh, and there was a creation myth that he got from the guy, that, and uh, that sounds vaguely like poorly remembered Sunday school lessons basically, and maybe that's what they were from, but. Um, they made an impression at the time. They, they were, they were uh, kind of re- redigested and, and reorganized, and it sounded pretty good. I think we have time for, for one more. And um, growing up, one of my favorite uh, books was Jules Verne, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. A Journey into the Interior of the Earth. But here, <laughs> okay, there's right. remarkable, remarkable oh, yeah. uh, parallels between uh, his book From the Earth to the Moon, which mm-hmm. was written around 1865, I think. 1865, yes. And, and the actual Apollo lunar landing. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is the one where uh, Occam's razor breaks down, basically. Um, and, and there is no rational explanation. Uh, but he wrote um, he wrote a number of science fiction novels, as you're aware, and many of these include technological predictions. Uh, 
And most of, most of the technology he predicts, though, was extrapolations of stuff that was going on in his lifetime. It wasn't, wasn't a great mystery. Uh, but in this case, it was his first novel, actually, too, written in 1865. And he depicts uh, a, a program to send three men to the moon in an aluminum capsule. They're launched from Florida. They circle the moon. They return to the Earth. They land in the Pacific Ocean. And they're picked up by the U.S. Navy. Now, does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, and that kind of defies uh, coincidence. And the plot includes um, mention of Texas politicians making trouble because they wanted some involvement. The Florida was going to be involved. Now, in the actual moon program, that did happen, and that is why Mitch Control is located in Houston. Exactly. Johnson, President, Vice President Johnson, Absolutely, yes. was from Texas, uh-huh. and uh, Cape Can- or, uh, Kennedy uh, Space Center is in Cape Canaveral. Right, Florida, yeah. And he wanted in on it. And uh, beyond that, uh, the novel includes a fairly detailed budget for the program. And later, modern analysis, uh, when you figure in inflation, shows that it's about 85% of what the actual cost of the lunar program was at the time of the Apollo 8 mission, which wow. is what seems to be metaphorically describing. And to me, that shows that he didn't leave enough for a managerial overhead. He was an amateur when he figured it. Or something. You know, where does he get this? And we don't know. How, how did this all come to him? It, but it, it even, just... goes, even goes further. I mean, the details. This, this, this story reminds me of the parallels between the Lincoln and the Kennedy assassination, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh-huh. But, but the, the, the canon in Vern's story was called the Columbiad, yeah. while the Apollo 8 command module was the Columbia. Right, right. And uh, uh, even in the, in the book, he even tries to set up a tracking network. Of course, he'll use telescopes. He, didn't know, he, he doesn't project radar or anything like that. But of course, he, the main problem is he uses a cannon instead of a rocket. But that would probably uh, was more acceptable to the readers, you know, who, who uh, wouldn't have wouldn't seen, seen rockets as reliable or powerful enough to do anything this big. Couldn't, you couldn't build black power rockets from beyond a certain size, in all probability. So this is more acceptable to his readers, although I think he was aware it probably couldn't have worked. I mean, it would kill the astronauts. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's just mind-boggling how many coincidences there are. This stuff that, that defies coincidence. Uh, as if he, he did tune into something from 100 years in the future. Uh, uh. Yeah, you point out that the uh, in the Apollo program, of course, there were three uh, crew members aboard. Right. Uh, right. Same as in Vern's uh, story. Right. And, and the, the capsule was made out of aluminum. Yes. It's about 10 tons in both cases. Uh, it takes about four days to get to the moon in both cases. But, of course, you know, Vern had enough engineering skill and to figure out that's how long it would take, you know. Um uh, so that's not remarkable in and of itself, but there, there are so many parallels that don't have to be there. Now, what bothers me about this, now that they're winding down the space program, is he doesn't <laughs> describe anything beyond that. You know, what, what happens next? Guy, tell me. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, we are doing something, are we? Come on. So, uh, uh, it, it also reminds me of, uh, I forget which uh, a, a book it was, Arthur C. Clarke basically talking about satellites before right. they were around. Right, right, how, how they might be useful for, for navigation uh, and communication. Of course, that's what they're, they're used for nowadays. So, uh, but uh, uh, he's not the only one but, uh, who, who made fairly accurate predictions. Like I say, uh, 
often engineers think along you know the same lines, but once they study the same project, same problem. Uh, uh, having a book to example the Confederate submarine, the Hunley, which was built in 1863 and looks superficially like something a, a modern submarine can scale down. It has many of the same features. And you wonder, you know, how to manage to to know what to do and how to build a submarine. But on the other hand, it, it drowned three crews before in, in the process of sinking an enemy vessel. I'm not sure you can say that was successful. Uh, so that's that's why I call it the bleeding edge, way out, you know, beyond beyond the leading edge. You know. Well, we've just scratched the surface here, and I'm guessing you've probably um, collected enough stories for a volume two of Out of Place in Time and Space. Yes, I have, and there is plenty of stuff out there. Excellent. The more you look for it, the more you find. Frankly. Terrific. Well, we'll look forward to volume two, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Let's hope it's settled. Lamont, well, thanks so much for this. Okay. Well, thank you. Out of Place in Time and Space, Inventions, Beliefs, and Artistic Anomalies that Were Impossibly Ahead of Their Time. It's available on Amazon or Betty Bookstores. Excellent. Okay. Lamont Wood. Uh, also, my thanks to Tyler Hamilton, the author of Mad Like Tesla. And that does it for our uh, episode... And that does it for our Inventors special here on The Conspiracy Show. My thanks to Griffin March. Just a reminder, next week, the 48th anniversary of the JFK assassination, uh, I'll speak with Max Brown, the editor of JFK uh, Deep Politics Quarterly, and uh, he'll shed some new light on the, uh, the assassination. This guy knows everything there is to know about the JFK assassination and the Warren Commission, uh, you name it. Also, Phil Nelson... Uh, has a new book called LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. That's right, he's pointing his finger squarely at Lyndon Baines Johnson as orchestrating this heinous crime. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.